You may be seated. Well, last week we started our new series in the book of Judges, and we began looking uh, really at the first half of chapter uh, 1. And I got to tell you, I can't think of a better way to begin a book than the way that Judges began. It, it started with God's people, with, with the tribe of Judah, seeking the will of God. Uh, that's, that's a great start. Because uh, immediately after that, we begin to see God's faithfulness. God is faithful to reveal his will, to direct his people. And then we find the people coming together and unifying together, all, all of them submitting themselves to the will of God. And after that point, what we find is we, we begin to see victory after victory after victory for God's people as they continue to learn to entrust themselves to a sufficient God. Now, after the message last week, and this doesn't always happen, you know, sometimes I preach messages and people run from me after the service. I'm not sure how to take that. Uh, but last week was one of those encouraging messages. Um, people came up immediately after the first, second. People sent some emails and nice ones and, um, and talked to me through the week and just said, I needed that. I, I needed that. I, I needed that message for me. My family, myself, my wife, our kids were going through just a ton of things, and it's been really, really hard, and I needed the reminder uh, that God is enough, that, that he is sufficient in all things and, and of all things, and, and so I'm glad. I, I hope that if you were here that you were immensely encouraged because I got to tell you, you're going to need it after today, all right? You're going to need some encouragement because after, after that, everything begins to really go downhill from now until the end of the book. Kind of sad, isn't it? Right, the, when, when the pinnacle of the book begins in the beginning, uh, you really don't have anywhere else to go but down, okay, if you understand what the word pinnacle means, all right? So in the beginning, what we find is, is, is God's people, they're never more faithful than what they are here. They're faithful, they're, they're enjoying God, they're enjoying his presence. I get in a little bit of a feedback uh, up here, um, and they're enjoying a little bit. They're enjoying a little bit of feedback. No, they weren't. They uh, they were enjoying the the presence of God. All is going well. Verse nineteen, the wheels begin to fall off, and the first half of chapter one, we see victory. The second half of the chapter that we're looking at today, we look at defeat. The first half, we see the sufficiency of God. The second half, we see the failure of man. Let me, let me just tell you just as clearly as I can really what I think the whole chapter one is about. I believe what God is trying to teach us, wants us to know is this, is that we as God's people, when we submit ourselves fully and completely to an all-sufficient God. That means that we rest on his plans, on, on his purposes, on his power, and his presence with us. When we put all of our rest in that and live that way, um, we experience victory in our life. We, we experience the victorious Christian life. That's, that's what's lived out. That's the outcome of it. But when you and I choose to do things our own way, when you and I decide to go freestyle, if you will, if when you and I decide to do what's right in our own eyes and not place our faith in an all-sufficient God, but all of a sudden become self-sufficient apart from him, then guess what? Defeat is imminent. Defeat is imminent. I think that's what the whole point of chapter one is. And so last week, we got a little bit of this picture of what it looks like when you and I, a life that is lived based on in our faith in an all-sufficient God, and it looks fantastic. This week, however, we're gonna take a look of what it looks like when we don't. When you and I are not resting in the all-sufficiency of God, but trying to do things our own way, that's what we see a picture of today. 
And so I want to show you three things that I think, hopefully, and I pray, are clearly evident within the Word of God. Three things we want to see. First thing is this. First, when, when, we, when we fail to entrust an all-sufficient God, we suffer from sketchy theology. We suffer from sketchy theology. Now, now we got to kind of back up a little bit. We didn't read this this week. We read it last week. But I actually want to begin drawing your attention to verse 19. Look, look in the Word, if you will. The Bible says there, it says, And the Lord was with Judah. So, so far, everything is good. If the Lord is with you, things are good. Would you agree? Because if he's with you, that's great in and of itself. But that also means his power is with you. So they're doing what God has called them to do. He's there. His power is there to empower them to do what God had already commanded them to do. Things are great. Things now go south. It says, and he took possession of the hill country, but, oh, here we go, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. So apparently, this group of Canaanites that, that Judah comes up against is unlike any of the others. They're far more technologically, far more militarily advanced uh, than any of the other tribes, that they, the Canaanites that they've come up against. Uh, in, in fact, what they have is they have iron-clad chariots. Now, now, just so that you know, Judah doesn't have anything even close to that in their safe, okay, in, in their gun safe, in their arsenal. They don't have anything to be able to compete with an iron-clad chariot. So the Bible says at this particular point, they couldn't go any further because the enemy was too strong. What do we do with this? Have we not been teaching all last week about the sufficiency of God? God is all sufficient. God is all powerful. He's almighty. There's nothing he cannot do. We get to this section and it seems and it appears as though God can't do it. What's going on in the text? Is, is the text telling us that there are some, that, that God's really sufficient with all the kind of the easy things in life, but there are some really hard things in life that God just doesn't have the power to be able to sway? Uh, is, is, I think the question is, is, is God's sufficiency somehow lacking here, or, or is it canceled out by the superior military? Is God just simply not enough? Is that what the text is saying? I don't think so. But I do think that's what the tribe of Judah is saying. And I do think that that's what the tribe of Judah was thinking. When they come and they said that they could not take it, that's from their perspective. Hey, we went up, but we couldn't take it. Why? They have iron chariots, right? And so they're sitting there in their mindset. Now, check out their shaky theology here. Their mindset is God is powerful, but he's not that powerful. He's big, but he's not that big. Look, he's big enough to take care of just average, everyday wooden chariots, but not iron chariots. Now, that's what they're saying, but it's not what God's saying. It's not what God's saying. What the word of God teaches us, and you need to keep, some of you need to be gripped by this reality, listen, is that God is more powerful than anything, that he is capable of anything, that nothing, not even iron chariots, not even iron chariots can keep his will from being fulfilled for you and for, for me. I, I can prove that God is stronger than iron chariots. We've got to go back a little bit. Uh, it, remember, I had already gone through a series through the book of Joshua, but let me remind uh, you of one thing. Joshua chapter 17, uh, something interesting happens there. Uh, Joshua is approached by what are known as the, the people of Joseph. It's made up of two tribes, uh, the tribe of Manasseh and Ephraim. And, and they come to Joshua and they're like, Joshua, listen, uh, we don't have, our, our people are so big, we just don't have enough land for them. And, and, and Joshua comes back and he says, hey man, we got plenty of land. Look at all that land out there. Hey, check out the land of the plains over there. 
Now, when he points them to it, it's the same exact land as we're reading about here in Judges chapter 1, all right? Same land. And he says, there's plenty of land. You just need to go, and you just need to take it. Well, they come back, and the Bible tells us this is how they respond. It's true that we need more land, but the land that you're telling us to take, they've got iron chariots. Do you see that? Still, they're they're really struggling with this. So Joseph comes back. In other words, hey, great, do you have anything else for us? That's too difficult for us to be able to overcome. Joshua comes back, and this is how he responds. Chapter 17, verse 16. um, I'm sorry, a little bit later than that. He says, you are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. I like this guy, right? I mean, he's just so positive, right? Then he goes on, he says this, for you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have, note this, chariots of iron. And he says, and though they are strong. I love I love Joshua because he's a realist, and I'm kind of a realist, right? He doesn't sit there and go, man, they're a bunch of pansies, man. Just go in there. No, he goes, man, they're tough. (laughs) Dude, they've got iron chariots. They are quite the opposition. But he says, go and do it. You're not going to have a problem with it. Why? Because he's not confident in the people or their military might. He's powerful in his full confidence in the sufficiency of the God in which they serve. He says, go. He goes, God can do it even if they have iron chariots. Now, why in the world would Joshua be so convinced? Why would he teach that with such conviction? Because he experienced it himself. We move back a little bit further in the past. You get to the book of Joshua chapter 5, and a little battle called Jericho happens there, right? Everybody together, Joshua fought the battle, right? right? That's the battle that takes place in, in Joshua chapter 5. God says, go and take the city of Jericho. One problem, they can't take the city of Jericho. They have these huge impregnable walls. They are wide, they are high, they are deep. You can't go around them, you can't go over them, you can't go through them. God calls these people with sticks and stones, basically, and some swords thrown in and a couple spears and says, okay, go and take the city, right? They know very well, Joshua knows very well, we can't take the city. We can't, you can't knock down that wall with a sword. We can't do it, but they go anyway. Why? Because God says he's with them. God's with them. What does he do? They can't knock the wall down. God knocks the wall down. His people succeed. But where in the world did he get the gumption and really the, 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 the faith to even begin to go up against Jericho? Let's go back a little bit further. Don't you love this? Through the Bible backwards, all right? So we go back to Joshua chapter 1. What did God say there? Here's what he said in Joshua chapter 1 to, um, uh, to Joshua. He said, no man shall be able to stand before you. This is before they ever begin, before they even cross uh, the river. God says to him, he says, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Now note, he says it again. But only be strong and courageous. Why does he say it twice? He says it twice because church, church, listen to me. Those who follow Jesus Christ, there are things in your life that you have to be strong and courageous. They are hard. They are difficult. You've got to muster up the strength before God. And you've got to to go against iron chariots, things that are very difficult. 
You've got to be courageous. You understand that? But notice his advice to him. He says, only be strong and courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Here's the game plan. This is what I want you to do. I want you to go. I want you to be confident in what you're doing, not because of you. Because the truth is, what I'm calling you to, in and apart from me, you can't do it. This is, what, this is what he's saying, Joshua. He goes, but with me, you can do it. Here's your role. Your role is to be obedient in everything I call you to do. If I tell you to blow a horn, you blow a horn. If I tell you to walk around the city, you walk around the city. If I tell you to take a land with iron chariots, go and take the land with iron chariots because your obedience, I will take my power, I'll work through you and make possible what it is that I'm calling you to do. So, Really what's happening here, let's, let's step back just for a minute. I, I said all of that, bored many of you with it, to get to this point. And that is, that is, I think these people are lying. When they said they could not take that land, I think they're speaking false. I think they're lying. Liar, liar, pants on fire is what I think they're doing. Why is that? Because God doesn't call you to do something he won't empower you to do. What they should be saying is this. They should not be writing. They're writing it this way because it's their perspective. From their perspective, they said we could not take it. What God's saying is, oh, you could, but you wouldn't. You could do it. You could do the very thing that I called you to do with my power and relying on my strength. I didn't call you and I never will call you to do anything that I will not empower you to do to make it possible. He made it possible. They just It's not that they couldn't, it's that they wouldn't. Now, we get to the New Testament. The Bible teaches us basically the same thing, is that God calls us. He continues to call us to live for him, to, to make disciples of all nations, to go, to give, to serve. He tells us to, to raise up our families. He tells us to do some very difficult things. Anything harder than trying to raise your, your family in the admonition of Christ? Anyone? Anyone? Anything more difficult? Men, is it hard to give? God's still calling us to hard things, yes? God calls you men to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life for her. Do you understand what that means? Is that difficult to do? Yes? I, I, need, I, I need help. Yes, it, it's difficult. Okay, ladies, I know I'll hear from you. Ladies, look, look, you need more help than I thought you needed, ladies. They may not even be doing it. That's why they don't find it hard. Listen, here's it, ladies. Is it hard for you to submit yourself to your husband as, as unto the Lord? Is that hard? Very hard to do. And sometimes we find ourselves saying things like this, I just can't do it. I just can't do it. Is it that you can't do it or that you won't do it? Is it that you can't? God clearly calls you to do it. But is it because you can't do it or is it because you're sitting there and you have a picture of a small God? You think that he can take care of the little things, but he can't take care of that. As a pastor, I hear, and, I, and I've heard this many times, and I've had to take people to, to scriptures like, like 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Listen to this. It says, his divine. So we see in the New Testament the teaching that that particular story really, really goes hand in hand. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. His divine power has granted to you all things that pertain to life and godliness. You know what that means? Everything he's called you to do, he'll empower you to do. That's simple. That clear. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. Very familiar passage of scripture. It says, God is faithful and he will, not let, he will not let you be tempted beyond what you're able. 
He says, but with the temptation will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You know what he's saying again? Again, he never calls you to something that he will not equip you and provide the power by his abiding spirit for you to be able to do. So it's never for us to say, I can't. It's always simply, I won't. But why, don't we, why, why do we like to say, I can't? I can't because people feel bad for you. Right? I mean, I've tried this, but I just simply can't. Oh, I'm so sorry. He's, he's tried so hard. God says, no, that's not the way it works. It's not that I can't. It's that you won't. Stop and think about this for a minute. Have you ever heard somebody's been really, really hurt by a spouse? You got a husband. You got a wife. Trying to put the pieces back together the best that you know how. And you're trying to lead them in it. And you're trying to bring them to the gospel and, 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 and unfold the gospel so they'll live it out within that relationship. And you turn to one and, and, and you tell them, you say, you say, Wife, you, you need to forgive your husband. I know it's hard. I know it's hard, but you need to forgive your husband. Do you know how many times I've heard this? I can't. Can't. Too much has happened. Too much trouble, too much difficulty, too much past. I can't do it. You take him to scriptures like this, and I always ask the question, you can't or you won't? Because God tells you and commands you to forgive those that have harmed you. He tells you that if you don't forgive, that God will not forgive you. Why in the world is God going to call you to do something, right, that he's not going to equip you to do? You can't or you won't. I hear it all the time. People all the time, we're working, we're discipling them, we're working through their finances. And I said, listen, you know that God's called you to give, man. God's called you to give. It's clear in the word of God. Here it is. It's everywhere in the word of God. I can't. You can't or you won't. I can't go on a mission trip. I can't go and do that. There's no way that I can go. There's no way that I can go on the other side of the world. Well, you do know that the Bible says go, right? So let me ask you, you can't or you won't. I think, I think we would probably, I think we would be stirred up a little bit more if we began to at least talk a little bit more accurately. And we would sit back and we begin to say when we don't want to do something, not that we can't, but that, you know, I choose willfully not to do what God is calling me to do. You see that? I told you, we need to be encouraged. Last week, encouragement. This week, not so much, right? And so, so what happens? The, the, the problem for them is that they think it's a small God. Here, here's the news flash. You can't do it. You can't do it. But through the power of God and your obedience, you can, because he will give you exactly what it is that you need. Second point that we see here. When we fail to entrust or to trust an all-sufficient God, we suffer from sensible compromise. We suffer from, from, from sensible compromise, not only from a sketchy theology that God is, way, is small. When he's not small, he's big, but also from sensible compromise. Now, something different is going to happen. Now, we would hope that the disobedience of the tribes would end there with Judah, but it doesn't. It continues on. Sin kind of has a tendency to do that. It doesn't stay isolated. It seems to spread. So what they do is this. It's not only Judah that struggles, who's in the south, but now we begin to find that the tribes in the north, those tribes that were given an allotted land on the northern part of Canaan, that they now are beginning to become disobedient to God. We begin to read about that beginning in verse 27. Notice just a few things. Look down at that. It says, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants. Why is, why is that a problem? Because God told them to do what? Drive out the inhabitants. Let's, let's look at verse 29. Verse 29, and Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. You following me? Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants. 
Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants. Y'all tracking with us? One of two things are going on here. Either this is the worst Bible writer in the world, okay, because he has no imagination and he has a horrible problem with redundancy, writing the same thing over and over again. Either that's happening or God is repeating himself over and over because he's trying to drive home a point. I think it's the latter. What's his point? His point is, is that these folks knew exactly what the will of God was, and they didn't do it. Here's the difference. Okay, the, the people above them, Judah, knew what God wanted them to do. They didn't do it. But why didn't they do it? Because they had a picture of a small God. They had a shaky theology. They just didn't think God was big enough, strong enough to be able to overcome iron chariots. What's their problem? This group believes that God is strong enough. They believe that they're strong enough in God. How do we know that? We read it in verse 28. It says, and when Israel grew strong. The intention there is this. Remember, they're writing this, and their intention, they are now strong enough to drive out the enemy. They believe it. They know that God is big enough, but yet they still disobey. Why? In a nutshell, here's why. Because they think it will somehow be an advantage to them to disobey God than to obey God completely. You see that? I, I, you, say, you say, well, where is that at? Well, look at verse 28 again. He says, when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. So track with me for a minute. They've been fighting for a long time. All the way through the book of, uh, of, of uh, Joshua, now they're into Judges, another book. More fighting needs to be done. They, they have the power, they have the strength to drive them out. Somebody comes up with a good idea. So they think. It's the voice of reason. There's one in always one crowd. Guys are gathering around. Okay, guys, we've got to make one last push. We've got to be fully, fully obedient to God. Let's just go ahead and drive them out. Somebody raises their hand and says, I've got an idea. I've got kind of a little bit different idea than this. Right then, someone should have said, shut up, rebuked him, and he should have sat down, right? But instead, they're like, well, what, what is this idea? Well, listen, what if, and I'm just thinking here, okay, uh, what if uh, we decide not to push him out all the way? Well, God told us to push him out. Yeah, but just hear me out. All right, we've been fighting for a whole long time. Look, it's going to cost more manpower, more time away from the family. Can't teach them the Torah. Can't teach them, you know, Deuteronomy 6, homeschooling stuff. Can't teach them that. All right, I'm, I'm a homeschooler, so I can dog on it. All the homeschoolers laughed. Everyone else was like, what's so funny about that? All right, so, so, we, so, so, so this is what we could do. If we just don't push them out, we're stronger than they are, Okay. We can make them do things for us, all right? We can, make, we can enslave them. Hey, listen, um, Caleb, supposedly Caleb's alive still here, and if you know this, he's got to be pretty old at this particular point. He's the only one that comes over and enters into the promised land. He and Joshua, they're coming over. They could be leaning to him, and I'm using sanctified imagination here. You guys got that, right? This is not Bible, sanctified imagination, trying to get you somewhere. Here's the idea. Turns to Caleb and said, Caleb, man, you've been fighting more than any of us. Let me hear from you. Wouldn't you like the fighting to be over? Aren't you tired? Man, you've been telling me that you want to go on that hunt, you know, up in the northern part, up into the hills and the forest, great trees up there. Man, why don't you get away? Remember, you just want to spend that time in your RV, you know, going around visiting places that you weren't able to when you were a kid because you were too busy fighting. Wouldn't it be great to have somebody to free up our time because they do our laundry? And everybody turns around and says, sounds pretty good. Man, that, in fact, that not only sounds pretty good that sounds like it makes absolute sense look 
we have been obedient to God all the way up to this point, which would have been a lie, by the way. You're never completely obedient all the way up to this point. That's why it always makes me laugh. You hear people go, man, uh, God, look at all I've done for you all my life, and now this is going to happen. You're not as good as you think you are, all right? So they're thinking, and they're sitting back, and they're thinking, hey, man, we're going to lead this thing. It's pretty good. We've been obedient for the most part, but this little compromise could actually be a good idea. This is, this is actually sensible compromise. Do you see? You guys tracking with me on that? And so here, here, here's the problem. The problem with sensible uh, compromise, and, and I want to say this as gently as you can, is that it's always blatant sin against God, no matter how small, no matter how sensible it might seem. And it does seem sensible. How many of you either heard or even said, you know the clear word of God that God is telling you to do, but you begin to think in your own wisdom that I know God says this, but this might be a little bit more helpful for us to do this X, Y, and Z. You may not, you, you, you may look blank face like you do all now. I don't know if that's through confusion or conviction. I'm not sure which one, maybe a, a mixture of both, but we have all done it. One of the dangers of sensible compromising against God is not only that it's sin, is that you rarely experience immediate consequences of your sins. Have you ever noticed that? You know, there's certain sins that we could commit today and we would probably feel the consequences of that right away, right? If I go out, get drunk, get into a car wreck, I'm gonna feel, this, I'm gonna feel the consequences of that right away. Am I not? You guys still with me? Okay, all right, because I'll preach longer if you're not with me, all right? So, so clearly, we're working through this, we're tracking through this, and so, so we could feel that. So there's things that we could do that immediately we'd feel that. With small little compromises, you really don't see the consequences right away. In fact, this is what I would say. Some of those, some of those, um, uh, some of the uh, um, compromises that you and I make, there's actually a little bit of an uptick when we first do it. We actually benefit from it a little bit. Isn't that what's going on here? When, it, it, when they disobey God, does their arms fall off immediately? No. What, what do they do? They get their laundry cleaned. That sounds pretty successful. They, they get extra free time. They save some money from not doing what it is that God is ultimately commanding them to do, and they get free laundry. Nice little uptick. Here's the problem. It never lasts. There's always a little bit of an uptick. There always seemed to be a little, bit of a, a, a little bit of profit, but things then immediately begin to fall apart. They immediately begin to go down. Notice, notice if you will, uh, the progression of a downward spiral here, beginning in verse 28 again. There we see that they had the power to drive them out, but they compromised and they enslaved the people instead. By the time we get to verse 31, we see that Asher didn't drive out the inhabitants. They lacked the power to enslave them, and they simply allowed them to live. Among them, see that? We got the power, enslaved them. Now the next step over a period of time, we're no longer as powerful as them. Now we're just coexisting with them. Then finally we get to verse 34 and it says, the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. Do you see what's happening here? Now things are being reversed. They begin by driving them out Things, because of their compromises, have changed so radically over a period of time. Now they're being driven out of the very land that God has called them to. Here's the problem with these little simple compromises. They begin so small, but they end up so devastating. It's one little step away from God and compromise, but before you know over a period of time, you're wondering, how in the world did I get here? 
How in the world did all this happen? Listen to me. I know folks who sit there and in their lives are like little compromise, no big deal. It might even be beneficial. You know what the crazy part of this teaching is? You can actually be blatantly disobedient to God and look spiritually successful. You can look successful. You can sit back and, and, and you can, you can just, just say for a moment, you say, I'm never going to give. I'm not going to give any of that. I'm just going to keep my, my, myself, my, my money to myself. People can look at you and go, man, look what all that person has. He is so incredibly blessed. She is so incredibly blessed with all that God has had me. But let me ask you a question. Is that blessing? To have stuff but not be in an intimate relationship with God? It's not a blessing at all. So what happens here is this. Things will begin to fall apart. We, we, we begin to, to find that the later on that we go that really what they do is, is, is financially they begin to really suffer because they didn't drive the people out. Why? Because the people actually take the choices piece of land for themselves and they keep it. Later on, the people are thinking, man, it'd really be great to have that piece of land. Some of them begin to struggle because uh, God wanted them to be able to live in peace in his land. But from this point on, they can never live in complete peace. Why? Because they didn't drive them out. Well, let me, let me make another point. I don't think the author here, I don't think the biggest point is you're gonna struggle financially and there's gonna be wars that you're going to have to confront. I don't think that's, that's what he's trying to say. I don't think that's the outcome that he's trying to deter. He says that is what happens. You disobey, things begin to fall apart. But what he's ultimately getting at is the biggest problem is not pragmatic, but it's spiritual. What he's driving home is you take one step away from God, you think it's the end. I'm telling you, it's just the beginning. The next thing you know, you're gonna be a million miles away from God. And that's exactly what happened to the Israelites. They make one time, hey, this seems to be a sensible kind of you know, compromise here. We don't have to drive them all out. We're just gonna take a couple things to ourselves. This is not that big of a deal. Before you know it, they're worshiping some crazy moon god. They're intermarrying. They're a million miles away from God. And they're all asking themselves, how in the world did we get to this point? I'll tell you how you got to that point, by compromising. You thought that it was a good compromise. It never is. Third thing we want you to see here is this. Is when we fail to trust in all-sufficient God, we suffer from a shallow remorse. So just track with me what's happening so far. So what, what does it look like when we're not resting in the sovereignty of God? Well, you know what it is? Um, we're doing our own thing and we're, we're not being obedient because we suffer from a sketchy theology. We think our God is too small. Got that? Disobedience, God is too small. We, have you ever thought that? I, God can't do that? All right, we can identify with that. Second way of disobedience, um, I just think compromising here would make a whole lot of sense and we'd benefit somewhere. It hasn't worked well for either one of them. It's what it looks like not to reside and to rest in the sufficiency of God. Here's the third thing is a shallow remorse. Now, we're gonna look in chapter two very quickly. Now, notice this, it begins. Now, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to, Bo to, Bo to Bochum or Bochum. And now, here's the idea. Much have been made. Who in the world is this angel of the Lord? Uh, some people have suggested that this angel of the Lord is the same appearing of the commander of the armies of the Lord that appeared to Joshua in Joshua chapter 5, right before they went to take Jericho. Others have suggested that it's really not an angel at all. Instead, because the Greek word literally there means messenger or envoy. And they say, well, it's not really an angel. It's just, it's just some kind of divine figure. Some people have said it's a theophany. In other words, what that is is a, is a physical manifestation of God himself, that God was the one who was speaking these words. Uh, some have said that it's really a pre-incarnate pre um, uh, uh, um, uh, time when, when Jesus comes to the earth before he's born and he's in human flesh and 
he begins to speak these words. So you ask, well, Brother Mike, who is this? Well, I don't know. I have no idea who this angel or figure is. All I know is when he comes, he speaks on the absolute authority of God. Now notice what he says. He says, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said that I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. Do you see what he's saying? He goes, I was good to you. You were disobedient. Now things are gonna fall apart. Here's what's gonna happen. There gotta be a snare. You gotta start going away from me. This is what I didn't want to begin with. The reason I want, don't want you compromising is because I wanna walk in a tight relationship with you. I, I don't want you a million miles away from me. I want you in this relationship. That's why I gave you that command to begin with. Got it? Now notice their response. How are they gonna respond to this? Verse four. It says, as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and they wept. Good start. Good start. Why? Because there are some times in some people that have, been, have heard the truth so long and not repented that their hearts are so hard, they're incapable of shedding tears over their own sin. Bad place to be. Bad, bad place to be. Good place. There's still enough sensitivity enough that when you're confronted with your sin, that your heart is broken and it's wrenched and tears begin to pour because over the seriousness of you know of what you've done before your God. That's a great picture. Here's the problem. It's never enough. Tears are not enough. It's a starting point, not an ending point. Uh, because what happens after this, we would love to be able to read, and the people repented. But guess what? We got the whole next book to go and we're not seeing a whole lot of genuine repenting from the people. We see a lot of them that say, man, I hate to be in the pickle that I'm in. Man, I really wish I wasn't in this. God, I wish you would get out of my difficulty, but there's no genuine repentance where they're actually turning back to God. All they're doing is crying. They're just crying. Look, there's tears everywhere, right? It's so much so they said they called the place Bochum. The, the, the word literally means tears. When the place that you're crying in becomes known as the place of tears, you've cried. You, you got that? Lots of tears. Lots of brokenheartedness. No true repentance. The Bible warns us of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and verse 10. It says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But listen to this. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief is hearing the word of God very clearly preached, taught, read, whatever, knowing that you have sinned against a holy God, weeping and feeling miserable and broken over it, but doing absolutely nothing to turn back to God in obedience. That's exactly where they were. Now, God wants to draw them back. He wants to call them back. He wants to call you back. If, if you find yourself and you're like, man, after this, I find I'm really not tr entrusting myself to an all-sufficient God. I'm putting things in my own hands. There's, there's things that God has clearly told me to be obedient to, and, and I haven't done it, and I keep saying I can't, but the truth is I see through the word of God. It's not that I can't, it's that I won't. That really changes things. You know, I, Brother Mike, I, 
There are times in my life right here, right now, that I'll be honest with you, I'm about to make a compromise because it seems to make a lot of intellectual sense. It seems to really be to my benefit. The word of God is warning you away from that. There are some of you who have already done it and now you're further away from God. You're wondering how you've gotten to your place. And if you track it back, you can find a place in your life where God was speaking to you and you begin to compromise ever so small, but now you're a million miles away. How do, I, how do we call you back? How does God call our hearts and our sinful hearts back? You know what we could do? We could tell you that God's gonna get you. I had a Sunday school teacher that told me this growing up. You cross God, God will cross you. Woo! Okay, I'm so sorry, God. So sorry. Now I could say something cheesy and go, that's right, he crossed me. All right, you know, and say something cheesy, but that would be so Sunday schoolish and it would just kill me. But listen, we could go in the way, how, do, how, does, he, how, does, he, how does he draw us back? He could tell us that our families are gonna fall apart, our finances are gonna fall apart, that you're not gonna have any freedom. And, and, but, but God doesn't want to lead us back through intimidation and fear. He wants to lead us back into love by love, the greatest motivator. How, how, how does he do that? I think there's a hint. Will you, will you look at chapter two, verse one, just for a moment? We're, we're almost done. I'm gonna wrap it up here. He mentions that this angel of the Lord, whoever that is, came from where? Gilgal to Bochum. Why is that significant? I think the author expressly places Gilgal here to draw the people back to remembrance of another time. What is Gilgal? When God's people ended up going over and God divided the Jordan River. They walked through on dry ground. They came to the other side and in that place, they began to build stones. 12 stones they set up, all the tribes. They all set those stones up and it says, and this will be as an everlasting memorial to you so that you will what? Remember, remember what? Remember the sufficiency of God. Remember of time when all was right. Remember of God when God was speaking to his people, his people were speaking to God that the people had been in full submission to God and to what God had been calling them to do. They walked and they spent their time in his presence. There was close intimacy between the two. Here's what he's trying to do. He's trying to lead them back, not through threatening them, but try to draw them back and to repent in light of the goodness of God. That's what the scriptures tell us. In Romans chapter two, verse four, he says he leads us back through his, his goodness leads us to repentance. So here's, here's what I think the scriptures are trying to call us to. You might be in that place right now. You said no to God, let you know you don't have an excuse, God's big enough. You might be sitting back and saying, hey, listen, I'm making some compromise. My wife and I are making compromises in our purity and in our families, in our finances, in my job, whatever, these little compromises, it's not gonna pay, but I'm not gonna threaten you. The scripture's not threatening you. What he's doing is, I want you to go back I want you to go back um, to Gilgal. Right now you're in Bochum. I want you to go back to the time and remember this time. Do you guys remember a time in your life that you walked with in incredible intimacy with God? Seems like every day God was on your heart. God was on your mind. You want to do his will. You want to follow him. You want to be used of him. You weren't wrapped up in money and houses and all of these types of things. All it was was you experiencing the sufficiency of God, that he was everything for you. He says, right now, you're not there. Go back. Go back. Experience his goodness. Remember Gilgal. Remember that place. You're in Bochum right now. 
Go back and do the things that you were doing when your life with him and your relationship with him was at its richest. Go back to that. Do you remember that time? So he tells you that in light of his goodness is why we repent, is why we turn. Not because of the threatening of things bad happening to us. Will they? Yes. But he gravitates us back to his goodness. You know where the greatest demonstration of his goodness was? 2,000 years ago on his cross. When God chooses to become a man and willingly lays down his life for you. There's no greater love than that, than a man laid down his life for another. What a great illustration of his goodness. So right now, whatever the sin is in your life, whatever the compromise is in your life, go back. Desire again to be in the closeness and the intimacy with God that you once experienced again and repent. Let's pray. Jesus, we come and we love you and we praise you. And God, I, I just, I pray, God, knowing that I'm not sufficient to be able to convey the word of God really as I ought apart from your power. But God, I pray in leading and in studying of this that you'd grip us. God, that today we would have people that would sit there, get, for some, God, I ask in the name of Jesus that you would give them a full theology of you to show how big you are and you're greater than any problem, any difficulty facing them. Just, just get them a glimpse of you. God, I pray for some who are tampering with compromise that you would just help them to understand by faith it's, it's never to their advantage. It's always at their disadvantage. God, I pray that right now that for all of us who are not living in the sufficiency of God, that we're not entrusting ourselves to God's plan for our life. We're not encouraged by his promises. We're not relying on his power to live out and to do what God has called you to do. That God, right now, right here, that we will not have a shallow response in sorrow over our sin. But we'll be lifted up from the grudges. We'll go back to where we once were as we're reminded of your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand altar's open, but here's the idea. You can do business here, but you can do business right in your seat. If you want to know more about Christ, want to talk about that, we've got counselors we want to share and let you know clearly what